Good morning, family. I want to thank you for participating in Stars for Smiles again this year. Remember, the reason we take one of these home with us as we participate in it is it also reminds us to pray for the children that we are serving and touching their lives through our partner ministry. So if you want to be part of Stars for Smiles, begin by taking one of these, take it home, remember to pray, put it in a place where you remember to pray for the children that we are privileged to have an impact on their lives. And thank you for that. We're busy with our series entitled Free Indeed, and uh, we're considering this idea of the freedom that we have in Christ. And uh, as I've said before, the word freedom is such an important word in our society, in our culture, in our lives. There's so much written and said about freedom. So we want to make sure that as Christians we have a, a biblically informed understanding about what this freedom looks like and what it means. And to do that today, we're going to be talking about free from judgment. And um, we go into a portion of Scripture that many consider, commentators, theologians, consider this portion of Scripture to be the pinnacle of Scripture. It's sort of the, the height of all of Scripture and one of the most, if not the most important chapter for people to understand and get a hold of. And that's Romans chapter 8. Now, to understand Romans 8, you have to understand the rest of Scripture. So we're not saying this is the only portion of Scripture that's important. But there is a sense of this is the one portion of Scripture that every believer should continuously be meditating on and making sure that you have a working knowledge of what is said in this portion of Scripture. Romans 8, written by Paul, is this phenomenal work of explanation of our core beliefs and doctrines, particularly when it comes to the issues of salvation. Sometimes when we read Romans 8, and the book of Romans, and definitely Romans 8 also, it feels, may feel like it's a bit difficult to read and difficult to understand. Now, it's not really difficult. It's actually quite straightforward. But we do always face a challenge when it comes to Bible translation. Remembering that the Bible and Paul writing here is writing in a, in a different language than the language we are reading it in. He wrote in Greek and we have to read in English. He's also writing in a different context. And therefore, sometimes some of the words, for instance, that he uses, we don't have exactly the same words that describes exactly the same thing in English. And therefore, we, the, the, the interpreters and the people that put the translations together work really hard to get the best use of language to describe for us what Paul is trying to convey. And therefore, perhaps, I think sometimes one of the reasons it may feel a bit difficult is because there's a lot packed in to a portion of Scripture like this. I, I want to say it's dense. It is densely packed with very important thoughts and concepts. And it's almost like every sentence is jam-packed with key words that we have to understand. And so what I want to do today is try and just look at some of these key words, uh, particularly early on in Romans, and to help us formulate an agreement and a sense of working knowledge about why Paul particularly uses some of these phrases and how it helps us understand our doctrine and thought and practice of salvation. So I want to go right, jump into Romans 8 verse 1 and 2. And Romans 8 verse 1 particularly is a very often quoted, very well-known verse where it says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right in these early thoughts in the book of Romans, Paul uses particular language to create for us a sense of understanding about what he's going to explain to us. And there's three phrases here that I would like to spend a bit of time around. The first phrase is the word condemnation. Why that word? Why did he choose that word? What does that word mean? And then the, the, the two laws that he describes, the law of the Spirit who gives life and the law of sin that leads to death or sin and death. And so I'm going to try and help us just get, a, as I say, a working knowledge of those terms. Now the word condemnation is an interesting word. Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation. When he chooses the word condemnation, he's trying to describe to us a state that we are in, an experience that we are having, a position of sorts, something that every human being 
is going through at the moment, a state that you are in, the word condemnation. He is saying, therefore there is the, the, now no condemnation, but we used to have condemnation. Every human being is experiencing and living in a state of condemnation. This word condemnation carries with it this feeling of lostness. He's describing the state that we are in, this experience that we are having, this condition that the human race is in is a condition or a state of lostness. We have lost something. And that something that we have lost is we have lost our relationship with God. We are now estranged from God. We are strangers. We are no longer home. We used to have a home. We used to be in a state and a condition of belonging and being at home with God in right relationship with Him. But we have lost that and we are now estranged from God. We are no longer home. We are now wanderers, vagabonds, lost, trying to find our way back home, but unable to do so. This is what he's describing for us in the, in the word condemnation. The word has a sense of inevitability about it. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you cannot change the fact that you are lost and that you cannot find your way back home. It's inevitable. Inevitable that your life, no matter what you do, will be lived far from God, estranged from God, separated from God. This is the condemnation that you are experiencing. It's horrible when you come across something that has inevitability about it. That when you put effort into something, you try. But no matter what you do, you can't change the outcome. This is the condition that he's describing to us. We are trapped. We are caught in a state of lostness. We don't like it. We don't want to have it necessarily. But there's nothing we can do about it. This is condemnation. But he comes to give us the good news. That there's an alternative to this state. And he says to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the state, the condition, the experience of every human being is this lostness. And in, in, in one way, what he's describing to us is a broad experience. It's a common experience. It's everybody's experience. So it's this big experience, if you understand what I mean when I use the word big. It's this broad experience. He says, this is the state everybody finds themselves in. But there is also available a narrow experience. A narrow possibility. A once-off opportunity. That if you make use of this opportunity, you can escape this condition of inevitability of lostness. And this once-off narrow opportunity is also available to everybody, but it is available in Christ. In Christ only. If you step into Christ, the only escape you can have from this condition of lostness is available through Christ. There's no other options. That's why I mean it's narrow. It's once off. There's not many ways that you can get out of this state of lostness. This state of lostness is inevitable for every human being except there's one ray of light. There's one possibility and that is in Christ. You can escape the state of condemnation. Then he says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so he uses this very important idea that we have to tease out a little bit to understand. These two laws. Now the word law can also be translated and perhaps more comfortably used to understand, to say there are two authorities or two powers. That you live your life either under the authority of one law or you live your life under the authority of another law. Depending on the which authority you live, that will determine your life and the 
outcome of your life? Which law do you live under authority? And he says to us, there's two laws that govern all of mankind. The one law is the law of sin and death. The other law is the law of the spirit that gives life. So again, this broad place, this place of condemnation, of inevitability, of lostness, being estranged with God, that law is under the power and authority of the law of sin and death. This narrow space, this place of life in the spirit is a space that where you live under the authority of the law of life in the spirit. So Paul is saying, under which law do you live? Because that law determines your outcome. This law, the law of the sin and death leads to this condemnation, this inevitability. This other law, the law of the spirit, leads to life. Now, how does that work? What, what, what are the two operating differences between these two laws? So the law of sin and death, where does the law of sin and death come from? Right from the book of Genesis. Remember, when God created Adam and Eve, and he placed Adam and Eve on this earth as the, the first humans, that every human would draw its lineage and its origin back to Adam and Eve, those first humans that he began to have relationship with, and he outlined for them how you live life with him on this planet. He made this law, and he said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. He said, if you disobey me, if you rebel against me, if you don't do what I want you to do, that's what the word sin means, is to not live up to God's standard. It's to not hit the mark of God's way of life and doing it. He says, if you move away from that, you will die. That's the law of sin and death. If you sin, you die. Now, some people may think, well, that's harsh. I mean, really, Lord, couldn't you have made a law that says, if you sin, you have less money? I mean, that sort of sounds kinder. We must always remember the challenge we have with sinning against God is the only other option is death. There is no other option. What, now you may ask, what do I mean by that? We believe, the, the scripture teaches us, that God is the giver of life. Everything that exists, exists because God made it and God sustains it. Everything exists because God originated it and God is keeping it going. So God is the author of life. If I reject the author of life, I can't take life with me. Amen? It's like when Natasha says, you know, or I sometimes say to her, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. You can't say to God, Lord, I want nothing to do with you. I want to do things my own way. Please give me life to take with me. Because he is the author, the, the sustainer. Life exists because God exists. Where God is, there is life. Where God is not, there is death. So it's logical. It is an inevitable outcome that if I reject God, I will experience death. So God says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which basically is our way of saying, God, we don't want you to show us how to live. We're going to figure it out ourselves. We're better off without you. We can do a better job of right and wrong than what you can do. So we're going to do this on our own. God says, well, then you're going to die. It's just what's going to happen. Because that's the laws of the universe. That's how things work. So what we did is we did exactly that. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we sinned against God. We rebelled against him. We walked away from him and therefore death was brought into our experience. We died. Now what does that death look like? What that death looks like is that everything in us and around us has, is beginning to experience death, decay destruction, the absence of God. Everything. All of creation is in a state of disorder. 
It is no longer the way it was originally meant to be, to sustain life and human flourishing and the flourishing of creation. It is now in a state of disorder. And everything is decaying, seeing death coming about within it. That's the law of sin and death. And so I have to recognize that everything in me has been tainted by this death, is now experiencing death. Everything around me is experiencing death. The creation groans. Creation undergoes the struggle because mankind was made with the authority by God to manage and to care and to tend to creation. So now we have brought creation into the state of death that we are in. How I relate to myself is affected by this death. How I relate to others is affected by death. How I experience creation is affected by death. Everything is in a state of disorder. I live in the law of sin and death. So this is our experience. This is what happened. But God made us for life. He made us for freedom. He made us to live with Him in right relationship with Him. So God said, even though you chose death, I'm going to make it possible for you to still choose life and come back to life. And so the way God did that, firstly, initially, is he gave us the law. He gave us the law. In the Old Testament, the law of Moses. We sang about it just now. He, he told us, listen, I want to begin to describe to you and show you what good life looks like. What you have moved away from. I don't want you to be lost forever. I don't want you forever to be condemned to the state of animosity and being estranged from, from me. So God says, I'm going to give you the law to begin to point to you a way back towards me so that you can come back towards me. So he gives us the law. Now, if you turn to Romans 7, for instance, he talks a little bit about this law of sin and death and Paul begins to describe how that functions. He says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. So this is an interesting thought. Paul says, well, so is the problem not the law? If I don't have the law, then I won't sin. If I don't know something is wrong, then I can't, can't be held accountable for doing it. And that's often the theory people have, isn't it? If we want to deal with the sin problem, let's just get away. Let's just deal with the law. Get rid of the law. Because if the law says something is sin, if we take away the law, then that thing is no longer sin. I mean, like remember in the 20s and 30s, we had prohibition laws in America. And alcohol consumption and production and trading in alcohol was deemed to be illegal. And suddenly everybody that even wanted to have a glass of wine with their lunch became breakers of the law. Suddenly everybody was found to be guilty because there was this law. And they tried it for a while and then realized it's not working. It's just making a nation of lawbreakers. It's not helping. And so they scrapped the law. Yesterday, you were guilty of breaking a law. If you had a glass of wine today, you're not breaking the law. So if we just get rid of the law, we don't have a problem anymore. And some people think, now, well, that's perhaps the way God should have done it. If there was this law of sin and death, that if you break God's law, then just you will die. So let's get rid of the law, then we can get rid of death. The problem is just God's law is not arbitrary. It's not a prohibition law. We're trying something. God's law describes reality. God's law is how he made things to function. God's law is what makes life possible. Therefore, Paul says, if you carry on reading, um, so in verse 13, that, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it was it was. It, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandments, sin might be utterly sinful. 
Paul says the law is a good thing. Because the law describes to us what God initially intended for us. How he created us to have life. The law is not the problem. Breaking the law is the problem. You can't do away with the law and then you've done away with the problem. God says no. Because I love you, I'm going to give you the law. Now many of us think, "Mm." you know, if God loves us, then he should just allow us to do what we want. Why does a loving God give us law? Because that's what you do with people that you love. You tell them up front, don't do that, it's going to harm you. You see, like when our children were small in our house, I didn't say to our, to our kids as they were growing up, or Natasha didn't say to them, hey, guys, there are things in this house that will harm you if you get in contact with it, but we're not gonna tell you because we don't want to cramp your style. We want you to self-express, we want you to learn. We want you to experience life the way you're going to experience it. So just go for it. You'll soon learn what, what will burn you. You'll soon learn that if you stick the knife in the plug, it's going to cause you not to have a great sensation. You'll learn that, but we don't want to tell you because we don't want to be unloving. No, what does a loving parent do? Don't touch. Why, mommy? I'm, because I say so. I'm not even going to explain it to you. Just don't touch. Don't do that. We had one of our sons that seemed to always want to touch the iron or the stove. And he he often ended up with like his fingers bandaged. And we looked like we were bad parents. But we could at least point to three others and say, look, their hands are fine. It's this one. That's why you have more than one child. It just gives you opportunity to, to sort of even out the odds, you know. This is the loving thing God does. He tells us before we break the law, don't break the law. This is the consequence. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, I suggest you don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You know, I don't, I don't want to up in your face. I don't want to be harsh, but I just don't do it. It's not a good idea. He says, listen, if you eat of this tree, I'm not... I don't know how to translate that. How do you translate that? I'm not going to put on nappies on anything. Uh, you know, you will die. He's like, you know, and my conviction is that that tree in the garden had neon lights flashing on it. It had a perimeter alarm system. It wasn't God like playing with us. He was saying, if you eat of this, you will die. Then after we ate of it, he tells you, now I'm going to tell you what death looks like. And he brings us the law. And what the law is good for is it describes the death. It tells us everything that is killing us, everything that is bad for us. It is a loving parent saying, don't. Now, because you've broken the law, don't keep on going just down that. I'm going to try and put things in place that stops you at least from going the whole hog. Can I slow you down? Can I... Try and bring you to a place of understanding how bad this is for you. And so he gives us the law. Now, some laws are easier to keep than others. I mean, he gave the Ten Commandments. Most of those, you know, like, thou shalt not kill. How many of you have been able to keep that law for your life so far? I mean, those of you that are over 70, we really applaud you. If you haven't killed anybody... You, well done. Praise the Lord. I mean, wow. Anybody want to confess something today? You know, I would assume that most of us in this room has kept that law. Why is that law there? Because we shouldn't kill people. People are made in the image of God. That's, but now you start, you know, progressing down the law and some of them start getting a bit more difficult to keep. What is the task of the law? First thing to know about the law is that it's good. The law is not the problem. It describes the problem. And that's the second thing that's important about the law. The law reveals sin. It makes known to us what sin is. The law is the diagnosis of the problem. It's like when you go to the optometrist, you know. I wear glasses, so every second year you go to the optometrist. And they put you in that fancy expensive chairs of theirs with all the stuff that half the time I think, do you really know what this is doing now? I know there's optometrists here, so I trust. 
I'm just so glad. You remember the old days where they used to do that, blow that, like on your eyeball, and you're like, you know, they would say, just relax. Why are you shooting air at me? Like now they don't do it anymore. Well, mine doesn't. But you, you go sit there, and then they put that chart on the wall. Close your one eye. Read the top line. And you go, hey, I can read that. That's easy, man. I got that. My eyes are good. Then he says, read the second line. And you're like, okay, this is getting a little harder, but I can still do this. By the third line, you're like, I don't have a clue what's going on here anymore. You see, that's what the law does. As we engage, the law reveals to us our problems. We might think some of it, hey, we're okay. But the more you engage, the more you realize, I don't have a clue. I'm in trouble. There's a lot of it that I can't keep, I can't do. And that's the law is a whole system. It's a whole package deal that reveals to us what sin is. The depths. Because remember, as I said earlier, we are all in a state of disorder. Everything in me, around me, creation is affected by sin and infected by sin. Through the law, I'm discovering how far that goes, how deep that goes. Because one law may say, you shouldn't murder, but then you go further down, and then the law says, even if you think about murdering somebody, you're guilty of murdering. Can you see how it's describing the problem? It's revealing the issue. And that's God in his loving way beginning to show to us that you have a problem. So the law is good. You can't just do away with it and solve the problem because the problem is real. The law reveals sin. But what the law cannot do is it cannot save. So the law has the power of revelation. It does not have the power of salvation. It can describe your problem, but it cannot fix your problem. And that's what Ben read when he read Romans 8 verse 3 when we did communion. In what we could not do, the law could not do for us. So it's this wonderful description of the problem that then says, do you recognize you have a problem? You can't do anything about it. And that goes back to the condemnation. Paul saying, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, when I come into Christ Jesus, I come under the authority and power of a different law. But when I'm not in Christ Jesus, I'm in the authority and under the power of this law of sin and death. That can describe the problem. That can give me the explanation of the problem. That can reveal to me how deep the problem goes. But it cannot solve the problem. Why can it not solve the problem? How is it that that the law doesn't solve the problem? Because isn't that how we deal with wrongdoing every day? Isn't that how we curb bad things from happening in this world is we throw laws at it. We have laws that govern our nation. And every now and then they write a new law because somebody found a way around what is good and healthy and best for the rest of us. So they just fill that gap, write a new law. Now the law keeps us. Why is this law not able to solve the problem? Because the problem, as I've described a couple of weeks ago, is a problem that affects me, my condition, my orientation, my way of life becomes I am now this way. I break the law. No matter how many laws you put, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to break them because that's my orientation. And that's another word that is introduced from verse 4 is the word flesh. The word flesh, as Paul describes it, it, it's a word that describes our orientation as those that are lost. Our orientation is now not that we are just lost, but we are orientated towards lostness. We are not just lost. We want to be lost. We can't find our way home. Not because somebody's hiding it from us, but because we don't have the ability Because God is doing the best he can to describe the problem to us. But that's the state that we have. We are that way inclined. We are lost. 
Now, that doesn't mean we don't try and do good. And then that's one of the things we have to understand about this problem we have. Why we can't just keep laws and fix the problem. Because the problem with the law of sin and death and the flesh that tries to keep that law in its own strength is not just, the problem is not just the bad stuff you do, it's also the good things you do. What makes me lost is not just that I do bad things, it's also that I try and good, do good things. Now you may say to me, now how, excuse me, how does that work? What is the difference between bad and good? What is the difference? You see, sometimes we have this picture. We think of people like the cartoon. You've got an angel on the one shoulder and the demon on the other shoulder. Nah? Any of you seen that cartoon? You know what that means? So on the one shoulder, there's an angel telling me, do good. And then on the other shoulder, there's a demon that says, that's no fun. If you want to have a fun life, if you want to have an exciting life, you know, go for it. Just do what you want to do. And, and, and he's tempting me all the time. And now, if I want to be a good person, then I have to make sure I listen to the angel a bit more than the demon. Amen? And I try. And I try and be a better person than what I'm a bad person. Now, there's a couple of problems with that way of living. The first problem is, who decides which one's the angel and which one's the demon? Who decides what is good and what is bad? On what basis do you decide that? So, what, when do I know that this is the angel speaking and when do I know this is the demon speaking? What separates the two of them from each other? Now, what sometimes people do is they say, well, the Bible will tell me. So, the way for some people that would consider themselves Christians to deal with this is what they'll do is they'll say, the Bible will show me which one is the angel and which one is the demon. So I must study the Bible and know the Bible. Then the Bible will be the rule book, the law book that divides the angels from the demons. Okay. So, and then, now that you know what is, who's the angel and who's the demon, now what? Okay, then I know who to listen to. And then I can choose to do good. So you're going to save yourself then. But isn't that the problem that God says we have? We cannot save ourselves. So no matter how much you try and do what is good, you're going to not get it right all the time. And you can't save yourself, but yet you think you're going to try and save yourself by knowing what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that the problem with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I will figure out good and evil for myself. So even if I use the Bible, it will tell me what is right and wrong and then I can practice it. That's not what Christianity says. Because that leads to, okay, okay. so if you want to do that, then when are you good enough to come home? When are you good enough for God to say, condemnation is now broken over your life. You're no longer lost. You're no longer estranged from me. You're welcome to come home. Is, is it 51% good versus 49% evil? Is it 60-40? What? Now let's say, let's, let's be very kind and let's be very sort of easygoing. Let's make it 49%, 51%. If you can get it right in your life to 49% of the time, do the wrong thing, but 51% do good, then you, come, you can come home. Now, I, okay, that's wonderful. That, that may be possible. The problem is I just don't know if I want to go to that home anymore. How many of you want to live in a home where the standard is as long as you get it right one more time than you get it wrong? Doesn't sound like a great place to live. Okay, so out of 100 people, you only killed 49. You didn't kill 51, so you welcome home. How many of you want to share a room at home with that person? Hey? That doesn't sound very great. So therefore, God says, no, 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 no. I made you for life. I made you for freedom. I made you for joy. I made you for happiness. I made you for a life that is in abundance. So therefore, my standard is zero wrong, 100% good. That's the only thing I want for you. So none of this little bit of good, little bit of bad, we can't do that. God says, I want no bad for you. I only want what is good for you. 
But Lord, I can't only do good. Exactly. You cannot save yourself. The flesh tries to do good, and in that it is full of pride and self-righteousness. So what the law can do is empower my pride and my self-righteousness so that I can try and be good enough for God. God says you can't do it. It's impossible. Because my standard is only what is good. So stop it. I go, okay. What hope do I then have? Remember there is no condemnation because this is condemnation. No matter how hard you try, you will not get it right. It's inevitable you're going to fail. You are going to die. You are on a path to death and there's no turn off. You cannot stop it. You cannot change it. Except in Christ. In Christ. If you come into Christ, you come out under the authority of the law of sin and death and you come into the, under the authority of the law of spirit and life. Now, what is that law? How does that law operate? Romans 8, verse 3 tells us. Sorry, where am I? Oh, sorry, Romans 5, verse 1. I want to go there first. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word justified. So Paul uses the word condemned to describe what your, what your ultimate a destination is under the power of the law of sin and death. Under the law and the authority of, of life in Christ Jesus, the destination changes. And that destination is justified. What does the word justified mean? You belong. You have come home. You are here now. This is your place. That's the law. But how did I get there? If I can't help myself, what made it possible for me to come home to be justified? He tells us. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus, himself God, took upon himself the form of a man and stepped into the space where the law of sin and death operates. He stepped into that space. He came into this world where it's governed by the law of sin and death. Every person that gets born gets born under the authority of the law of sin and death. And Jesus stepped into that authority. Not only did he come and step into that authority, he clothed himself with the same flesh that you and I have that has the possibility to give in to that authority. The scripture says he was tempted like us in every way. So he, this is one of the mysteries. He was fully God and fully man all at the same time. Left none of his God-likeness and adopted all of our man-likeness and, and somehow was able. And he came and lived here among us in this, under this cloud of the power and the authority of the law of sin and death with the potential to actually be able to give in but never did. And like, living like us, Yet, he overcame the law of sin and death by never giving in to sin. The difference is while every human being is born into, under the authority of that law, Jesus was not born under the authority of that law. But he clothed himself. He came into that and he lived a life that pleased the Father, never sinning once. And that, on this earth, on its home turf, in its in its own space, he beat sin and the law of sin and death. And then, as a person that didn't have to pay a price or a sacrifice for his own sin, because he never sinned, he went to the cross and he died on the cross and took upon himself our judgment for our failure and for us being under the law and under the power of the law of sin and death. And he died in my place. Never having sinned, he took my sin, your sin upon himself. He died on that cross. Not only did he beat sin in this world, but then he beat sin in the world hereafter also. And he went, he died, but on the third day he rose and he conquered death. Because where does get, death get its power from? Why is death part of the human experience? Because of sin. He beat sin. 
in never sinning, and then he beats sin by being raised from the dead. And he conquered sin. So that if I put my faith in him, if I stop trying to beat sin and say, I'm a sinner, I can't do this, but thank you, Jesus, that you have done it on my behalf. Thank you that you have conquered sin. I come into you and into your sacrifice, your victory over sin, your payment for sin. And when the blood of Christ washes me clean, guess what happens? I am changed. I am no longer under the authority of the law of sin and death. I'm now under the authority of the law of the Spirit that gives life. Death is no longer my destination. Life is now my destination. I am no longer... I am no longer responding in the flesh. I am now responding in the spirit. And I'll talk a bit more about that at another time. But I have come home. Now this is the amazing thing. If you drop down to verse 14 and 15, uh, I'll, I'll come back to other things I wanted to say, but my time's finished. Verse 14, Romans 8, he says this. For those who are led by the spirit of God, are the children of God. I'm no longer led by the flesh, trying to do right by my own strength, trying to figure out what is right and wrong by my own strength. I'm now led by the Spirit. I'm allowing the Spirit to change me, to reform me, to make me understand, because my orientation has changed. I'm not living towards my own right and wrong. I'm living towards God's right and wrong. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about adoption to sonship. And he introduces this term, adoption. He says, you are adopted. And when he uses that word adopted, he says, you are a member of the household of God with the full rights that that includes. That's a very important thing. You see, because otherwise, what we might think is happening is now... Okay, God wants to set me free from the law of sin and death and the inevitable death, so now he's welcomed me back in the family, but now he's looking at how I will live in the family. And one day, he's gonna judge me based on how I lived in the family to determine one day whether I can actually be, really belong home or, or don't I belong. So what I, then, what I then think is, okay, I'll live my whole life, and at the end of my life, God will judge me and then say, you were good enough or you were not good enough, you, you welcome home or you're not welcome home for eternity. That's not the gospel. Amen? What does the gospel say? The moment I put faith in Jesus, I am adopted. I'm home. I'm home. God is not sitting in judgment over me. My judgment is done in regards to sin. Why? Because where did that judgment take place? My sin was judged when Christ was crucified. Every sin I've done before I met Jesus and every sin I subsequently do is covered by that sacrifice. And it's based on that sacrifice that I'm adopted. I'm home. I'm a child of God now. And that wonderful scripture Luanda read, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. Because what makes me come home is not my actions. I didn't come home based on my ability to do better or to do well. What made me come home? The sacrifice, the blood of Christ. That is a perfect sacrifice that cannot be undone, that, that there's no greater authority. So I'm home. I belong. No condemnation. I'm home. Now that's a very important thing, you know, because it, it changes the way you relate to God, if you understand it. You see, if I think that my judgment is still to come, then I actually put God in a position where he is my problem that I have to overcome. What do I mean by that? You see, if I think I've got to live my life now, you know, I've got to use the Bible and I've got to be a good enough person so that one day God will accept me. Then what I do is I put God over there on the throne. He's the judge. I'm over here living my life constantly worried about is, am I good enough or am I not for him? Because one day it's, I'm going to be judged. So I must go to church more often. I must stop, you know, doing this and stop doing that and do that more often. And I must really try hard and I must be a good person so that, so that God won't judge me. Can you see why God becomes my problem then? Then I'm actually in a 
relationship where God's my enemy. God's the obstacle. God is the obstruction. But I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. That's how the law of sin and death functions. But when I come in under the law of the spirit of life that is given to me by grace, and I realize I'm now, my judgment's taking place. I am home. I'm in the family. Then God is no longer over there, the problem, the one, the obstacle again for stopping me from getting to where I want. No, where's God now? He's my father. He's here. Or guess what? More accurately, I am with him. When, faith, when I'm faced with sin and the temptation of sin, sin is the problem, not God. God is with me, has given me the victory, has given me the victory, and now by the Spirit giving me the ability to overcome the temptation of sin. So when I'm faced with temptation, I go, Lord, thank you that you are giving me the strength to overcome this sin. Not, I've got to not give in to the sin because God's going to judge me. Thank you, Lord, that you have overcome this sin. And therefore, I can overcome it. But Lord, I failed. I gave into that temptation. I sinned. But guess what? God doesn't move from here to, the, to there again. Where is God? Still here. I say, Lord, forgive me. He says, you're forgiven. Now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, show me why. Show me the depths of the disorder in my life. Help me overcome that disorder. Thank you that it's possible. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And I allow Jesus to work. And so my whole life is about walking that freedom that I have received because I'm free from judgment. Are you free from judgment? You're not serving God because you're trying to escape judgment. That's been taken care of. You're serving God because you love him. Because you want to live the life that is the best possible life to live. And that's only possible with him. Under his lordship, under his grace under the authority of the spirit of the law of life. Won't you stand with me? Worship team, you guys don't have to come up. Won't you stand with me? As I've said, the, this portion of the book of Romans is very dense and it, you know, it's almost a part of scripture that you feel more comfortable to work through in a Bible school class or in a, you know, session like Neil does before service and, and in a space like that. But it's so important that as believers, we, like I said, get a, a bit of a working knowledge about the thoughts and the patterns in this portion of Scripture. And I trust that I've not made it more complex for you, but have been able to just give you something more to go, okay, I want to work further and I want to understand better. So that this freedom that, that I have can permeate throughout my whole being and my whole life and that I don't get tricked and trapped by the enemy and lured back in under this law of sin and death because the law of sin and death is where his power lies. That's where he will have his way in your life and destroy you and steal, kill and destroy. But if I can live under the law of, of the spirit and under the grace of Jesus, that's where I can have life and life in abundance. So I want to pray, Holy Spirit, just won't you just open your heart in this moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's any judgment that it still has power over our lives, the judgment that comes from the law of sin and death, I pray right now and in these days that you would reveal that to us in Jesus' name. Because that affects everything about our lives and our relationship with you. I'm praying, Lord, that for every person here on site, those online, where there's a fear that is trying to capture them again, a fear of the judgment of God, a fear of, the, of trying to do the right thing, I pray, Lord, that that fear will be revealed in Jesus' name and that, that the power of that fear will be broken for we are no longer slaves to fear. We have been adopted. I want to declare it in the spiritual realm today over every one of us. Welcome home. You have been adopted. Your adoption is not coming in the future. It's not waiting for you at the end of your life to, if you have done well enough. You have been adopted. You have full rights. You are a co-heir with Christ. It is settled. 
Now I can live in response to that. And I can deal with that which tries to recapture me and say no. And I pray for that today. I pray very really and very practically, Lord, where sin is knocking at the door of our hearts, wanting to conquer us. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, by your Spirit, give us the power to overcome sin. Perhaps right now you're so aware in your own life of something where the enemy is trying to capture you, trying to lure you into a space of being captured by the law of sin and death. Can you, can you just right now, as a child of God, stay, stand in front of that temptation and say, in the name of Jesus, I refuse to give in to you. I break your power over my life. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have set me free from this sin and this temptation. Thank you, Jesus. That through your law, you revealed to me the problem. But through your grace, you enabled me to be free from the problem. Thank you, Jesus. And I take authority over every lying, evil, foul, spirit, demonic presence in this place today and those that are with us online in Jesus' name. I take authority. You have no right because your authority has been removed. If we are in Christ, we are no longer under your authority. And I thank you for that, that that authority is broken today in Jesus' name. If you agree with me in that, say amen. 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 May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord go with you. Please remember, stars for smiles. And if you want to connect with Ben in the Connect Lounge, please also do so. If you need prayer this morning, our team is available to come for you to come and be prayed for in the front. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've tried in your own strength to live a life pleasing to God, then today is the day where you can come and say to somebody, I want to pray and give my life to Jesus and accept his sacrifice for my sin. Please come forward and our team will be ready and willing and excited to pray with you and help you. But may the Lord bless you in this week and on your front line. Amen.